You're listening to Tell Me More, a podcast for amplifying the work of graduate students. I'm your host, Wilfredo Flores, or just Will. This is a show where we ask graduate students a singular question. Tell me more. So let's get into the episode. Hi there, welcome to Tell Me More, where we chat with graduate students about their work, ideas, and more. In this episode, I'm chatting with Eliza Gellis, a third-year PhD candidate at Purdue University studying rhetoric and composition. Welcome, Eliza. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, I am, like you said, a third-year PhD candidate at Purdue University. Outside of biblical rhetoric, which is the subject of my dissertation, I am also really interested in rhetorical theory, comparative rhetoric, public rhetoric, um, and pop culture as well. Um, I do some research on fandom studies, so that's a fun outlet for uh, some more creative and personal work as well. Awesome. So you're here today specifically to talk to us about your dissertation, which focuses on the rhetoric of the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible. Specifically, you're looking at encounters with the divine as a framework for understanding otherness and the rhetorical encounter using a transdisciplinary methodology. You've said that your hope is that this project will bring rhetorical studies into conversation with Jewish studies. This all sounds amazingly cool and fascinating. So please tell me more. Well, thank you so much. It's always very exciting to hear um, that people are interested in your work. So if listeners are wondering what that word Tanakh means, that's the Hebrew word for uh, the Bible or the Hebrew Bible, and it's actually an acronym. So the Christian Bible is organized a little differently than the Hebrew Bible. It has um, some different books, additionally, depending on what denomination you are. Uh, but the Hebrew Bible is actually organized by topic instead of by history. So the first section is the section that most of us are very familiar with, the five books of Moses or Torah. And Torah means instruction, sometimes translated as law, but you can think of it more as guidance. It comes from a word that means um, kind of the path or the way, and that's kind of uh, the, the gist of it. Uh, less so law, scary, uh, more so instructions, guidance. Um, the next section is Nevi'im, and that means prophets. So that's the plural word for prophets. And that's where you'll find all the prophetic writings, the major prophets, the minor prophets. And then the last section is Ketuvim, and that means writings. And that is kind of the funny, like miscellaneous section of like, we should put this in here, but we don't really know where it goes. So we're just going to have an additional section. And that's where you'll find poetry, stories, um, or other texts that don't fit clearly into the prophets or obviously the Torah. Um, so in the Hebrew Bible, that is where you'll find Ruth. Um, that's where you'll find Song of Songs. That's where you'll find Esther. That's where you'll find uh, Daniel, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an acronym because those things are long when you say them all together. Um, and I always think that's a little amusing that, you know, this 
the name for this very holy text is actually just an acronym uh, for ease of speaking. Um, right. So yeah, that's where that word comes from if people are wondering what that is. So I like to use that word um, instead of Hebrew Bible or Bible. Um, it's a little more specific than Bible. Uh, sometimes people will say things like, we should teach the Bible in school. And it's like, well, who's Bible? Right? Different Christian denominations even have different Bibles than each other. So are we talking about the Catholic Bible? Are we talking about the Protestant Bible? Um, and then, of course, it becomes more complicated when you think about the Hebrew Bible, which is really a separate document, often with different source texts, um, and certainly in a different order and with a different goal. So Hebrew Bible is typically the word that is used in place of Old Testament. Um, and that's used for a couple reasons. One, like I said, Old Testament is just not, it's just not the same book. Um, it's in a different order uh, and it's canonized with a different purpose, right? Which is totally fine, uh, but it's not the same book. And so you actually wanna be clear about which document you're talking about. If I'm talking about the Old Testament, I'm using that word like in a specific technical sense, right? To refer to the Christian Old Testament that places Ruth not with the other writings, but up in Judges, for example. Um, so Hebrew Bible is used more specifically, and it's just kind of the English word to clarify that. Um, Jewish Bible is also certainly acceptable. But I like the word Tanakh because it's the name for the thing in its own language. Now, colloquially, Jewish people to each other will just say Bible, and we know, we know what we mean. Um, in the same way that we will say temple to each other instead of shul or synagogue, and like we'll know what we mean. Um, but when I'm using these words in like a technical sense, I really like to emphasize um, this is a Jewish text. It's important in Jewish history. And I think it's important enough to use the words that we use in our own language, um, in our own holy language or liturgical language, certainly to talk about it. Um, and luckily, uh, I know some people have a little difficulty with the sound in the back of the throat. Um, but it's not a super, super long or complicated word. So it's not too, too difficult to adjust to. Um, and that's important to me because one of the goals of my project is getting people of all backgrounds to unpack what it means when we say the Bible, what assumptions we're bringing to that and whose Bible we're really talking about. I'm trying to think of, and I am sad to say that I don't really know too, because I know people do it like a couple of graduate students within my own program who just graduated are doing work with rhetoric studies and religious studies and kind of combining the two together. So I'm just curious, I guess off the top of my head, I'm curious just to see how you see this work resonating out with the field like writ large, as you say, you're trying to bring rhetorical studies into conversation with Jewish studies. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, of course. So there's a couple layers to this. And the first is that it's been said that when we do research, it's really research about ourselves. And I think that is certainly true. This is a subject that personally um, interests me and also matters to me as a Jewish person. And my hope is that um, even though it is not a super sexy dissertation topic, the way that a lot of uh, digital rhetorics stuff is really hot right now, my hope is that people are interested in the Bible um, and will say, oh, well, that seems kind of, you know, that's, in that's interesting or it has a sort of popular appeal in that way. And I hope it speaks to people um, just in the sense of, of a personal interest. On another level, I think 
rhetoric and composition as a field has a really, really interesting disciplinary history. Um, and if you look at the way that the, the disciplines, you know, emerged kind of in the university, rhetoric and composition kind of went and went around that um, and emerged yeah. as a field much, much later. Um, and kind of with this, strange pre-disciplinary history. And we forget that the disciplines are a really like modern invention. Um, you know, in terms of Western or European education, um, you know, people were expected to be well-rounded individuals and rhetoric was a really core part of education for a long time. Right. So what's interesting to me is that we've always kind of struggled as a field to claim our discipline and say, well, this is who we are as a field. But at the same time now, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary work is uh, becoming more and more popular as a kind of methodological framework. And I really think rhetoric and composition has the potential to be a forerunner in interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary work. And you see that with you know, some of the really cutting edge work in our field, certainly. And I think this is one way that um, people who are interested in ancient or classical rhetoric um, can actually still do very interesting inter and transdisciplinary work. Um, just like, for example, um, Richard Enos very much is, you know, rhetoric of the field out there with a shuffle, you know, at these archeological sites. Um, so that's one example. I think people have a sense that classical quote unquote rhetoric um, is, dead, it's not meaningful, right? It reproduces these, uh, you know, certain power structures that value, um, you know, whiteness and that value, uh, you know, other sort of repressive things that aren't inclusive and all of that's true. But when you start thinking about, you know, the Greeks and Romans didn't exist in a bubble, yeah. um, other people existed in the ancient world who also like had a theory of rhetoric and may have even had a more explicit theory of rhetoric because like they talked to the Greeks and the Romans sometimes. Right. Um, suddenly possibilities start opening up. And when you can connect that with a contemporary field of cultural study, like Jewish studies, then I think those transdisciplinary um, potentials really start making themselves visible. And I think that's really important for the future of our field. I hope that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. It's something that I've actually thought a lot about too. Yeah, and I think for a lot of people who have an interest in history, particularly ancient history, um, that can be difficult, you know, because these things are, are interesting. I was never as interested specifically in Greco-Roman history, but I was really interested in ancient rhetoric is the term I prefer to use. I think it's more inclusive. Mm. Um, but yeah, and what we would call classical rhetoric. Um, and even when I took a classical rhetoric seminar, I wrote my final paper on um, the use of magic in classical rhetoric. And I talked a lot about what we would consider, you know, alternative rhetoric or comparative rhetoric. Um, I mean, <laughs> the Greek empire was big, the Roman empire was big. It's not like yeah. these people didn't talk to each other. Um, and there's been some really interesting work on this. I mean, even kind of back to the 90s, uh, you know, there's an essay, and I, I'm embarrassed, I forget the author, but it's called uh, The Second Sophistic in Palestine. You know, people are talking about, like, the sages of the Talmud were, like, conversant with contemporary rhetoric. Um, and in fact, I was just writing a section about gender in the Bible. Um, surprise, Adam's not a dude. We can talk about that if you're interested. Uh, but the word that is used is uh, androgynos, 
right? Which is androgynous, um, an intersex person. And like, that's pretty clearly Greek. So yeah, it's, I think it's, it's tough when you have like a personal interest in something, um, but you're like, oh yes, this has been used like for very ill purposes. There was a fascinating article about this in the New York Times um, about classics as a field, which is also kind of interdisciplinary, but organized around this Greco-Roman history that like the West has kind of like invented um, mm -hmm. that, you know, that, I mean, there's a clear lineage from the Greeks to the Romans is that the Romans arrived and thought, well, this looks cool. It's ours now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we've kind of invented this history wherein, you know, Europe and specifically Britain, right, is the inheritor of the Roman Empire, which is really funny when you think about, you know, Roman colonial history in England. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, if classical or ancient rhetoric doesn't appeal to people um, for whatever reason, like, that's fine. You know, I don't think that, oh, we all have to learn this because this is the history of our field or something, you know. Um, but for those of us who are interested or who do see worth um, in these things, just kind of like continuing uncritically and just saying, well, I'm going to do a dissertation in classical rhetoric. Like, it's like, well, okay, but how can we not only make that relevant and interesting, right? But why does that matter, right? Um, and I think knowledge should exist for its own sake. And I think that's really important. Um, do something because it's interesting and it's worth knowing, but also be thinking about like, how does that knowledge fit into the larger context um, of, these, of these structures, right? And like, what can we maybe do with this work that is still innovative? Um, and hopefully also liberatory as well. Right. There's amazing work that still goes on in what I would consider more traditional classical, you know, Greco-Roman rhetoric, but it's also really innovative. It's talking about, you know, poetry and music and, and really cool stuff that is totally relevant. Um, and that I think is still part of that project of like reimagining, right? right. Um, you know, and one thing that I think is interesting is we have an idea in our heads of what, Greco-Roman rhetoric looked like. And a lot of that is filtered through like what documents a bunch of monks found like a thousand years ago, right? Plato was not nearly as influential in his own time as Isocrates was, right? But everybody knows Plato now because that's the, those are the texts that survived um, that these monks had access to. And so they thought, well, I guess Plato was super important, right? If, if these texts are the ones that survived. So I think one thing that my project is trying to do, not with Greco-Roman rhetoric um, specifically, but with ancient rhetoric in general is, let's see if we can get into these people's own headspace about their work. And let's see what we can do with that. Because I think there are some surprises there. Um, I don't know that doing that for Greco-Roman rhetoric will necessarily have the same um, liberatory or more social justice bents that doing it with, for example, the Hebrew Bible will, um, which I think is very much a project of, uh, you know, Jewish reclamation, etc. But I just think there are a lot of really interesting um, potentials there. If people keep in mind, you know, the larger context of this work and don't assume that this is the one true rhetoric. Yeah, I think through this conversation, one thing that is always that keeps popping up in my head is this idea of ancient and the temporality of rhetorical yeah. studies, because it really is a little bit more amorphous than we might think in that 
the present day is very much informed by the past and even the way that colonial imaginaries envision a specific kind of history tied to Europe and Britain and all that other <laughs> colonial stuff too, like they are in conversation with each other because at least settler colonial studies tells us that, you know, contemporary society is a structure of colonization and there are very real reverb, reverber, reverb, reverberations <laughs> happening throughout time. So imagining a different field isn't just like saying everything that's come before is invalid or wrong or anything. But again, yeah, it's just kind of making space for those new different inquiries, I think, that still kind of are working at that dialectic between the past and the fu future, the present and the future, I guess. So yeah, um, I, think, I think I'm no. following along. <laughs> no, I, I think that makes total sense. And I, I really like the parallel that you're drawing with um, sort of what colonial studies tells us about history. Um, and I think that you're right. I mean, it doesn't really do anybody a service to forget the past. Um, I mean, it happened, right? And right. um, there are interesting things that happened, right? But also just saying, well, okay, we're just gonna do away with that, right? That allows us to forget the bad things too, um, which is something that I, I think is really interesting, especially as um, Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day approaches, um, uh, which starts, uh, you know, which is tomorrow. And, you know, there's a very fine line between you know, forgetting, forgetting the past um, in productive ways and non-productive ways or ways that could be harmful and how one moves forward from that. Um, you know, certainly thinking about, you know, the removal of um, Confederate statues, right, is an interesting way to think about that because yes, like those are public memorials, right, that are supposed to receive honor. Um, but at the same time, right, obviously you want to like get those out of parks. Those are bad. Yeah. Um, get rid of those. That's, just to clarify, right, don't, don't put those up, right? Um, you, do, you don't go to Germany and like see statues of Hitler, right? You don't do that. Yeah. Um, but we have photographs, right? We, we preserve the evidence that people did these things, that people valued these people enough to make statues of them. And that, I think, is what we should not forget. Right. Take right. a picture of it before you like burn it down with acid, which you should do. Um, <laughs> do that. Just throw it in the river. So put, it in a, it. put it in a museum, right? Yeah. And say like, look at what people did. Um, there is a fascinating book, by the way, if anyone's interested in this subject called Lies Across America. And it is about how in the 1920s, the daughters of the Confederacy erected all of these monuments in all kinds of places. I mean, in like Montana and stuff, which was not even like a state. And certainly didn't send soldiers to the Confederacy. So it's side note, that's interesting if, if people are, are engaged in it. And that's an old book, like that's not new. Um, so people have been talking about this for a while, right? But it's like, you wanna, you wanna preserve the memory, right? But people were excited about this. Um, and I think kind of shifting a, a little bit, um, you know, in terms of wanting to deal with the past, um, and certainly not erase the fact that there were people in the past who were excited by these bad things and like, you know, happily did them, um, even as you no longer honor the things that they are honoring in that, that tension. I hope I'm phrasing that in a way that makes sense. Um, I think the Bible is very much a site of many of the same discussions and arguments. And um, I mean, certainly part of my dissertation is thinking about 
what can you do with a document like this with all that it carries and all the history um, and how can you how can you reclaim it um, and that's going to look different for different people but part of my project is just sort of really almost back to basics this is the Jewish Bible and the Jewish Bible says different things than the Christian Bible um, a lot of of the assumptions that people carry about the Bible or what it says um, are influenced by Christianity. Um, and that can happen in a couple ways. And I think one of the most insidious actually comes from more like progressive Christian circles where they say, well, Jesus didn't say anything about the homosexuals. And you're like, okay, well, you know, I'm gay, I'm Jewish. And, uh, you know, the women of reform Judaism were campaigning for queer rights in the 1960s. So, you know, it can actually become very anti-Semitic, some of the way people talk about, you know, the vengeful God of the Old Testament. That was mentioned twice in a seminar I just went to about Christian nationalism, which was otherwise a fascinating and like very productive, you know, talk. But I was like sitting there like, this is a seminar about Christian nationalism. And you don't want to like pause for a minute and think about like <laughs> what parts of history might prompt Christian people, right, to think of the Old Testament God as, you know, bad and vengeful. Um, and that's like the very basic work I think of, of recovery for me in this project is not just, oh, you know, the Old Testament isn't really bad, but like this is the Jewish Bible. It's been used for 2000 years since Christianity, you know, split off from Judaism. Um, and there's a lot there that's meaningful to Jewish people that can also be meaningful um, to other people interested in the Bible in general. Um, but I think that has to happen on our own terms, not as, oh, well, we Christians what used to be Jews once. It's like, no, like this is really a different tradition at this point. Um, and that's okay. It can still be useful and interesting and meaningful. Yeah. This reminds me of the politics of historiography, um, particularly like from the, I forget which octologue, I know like as a, as a fourth year PhD student, you're in rhetoric and composition, you're supposed to have memorized all the octologues maybe, I don't know, but one of the octologues and it talks about these kind of, the politics of revision or revisiting the past in these particular ways. And I think you're right, very much so that it's not trying to like, not trying to pivot away from these things, but use that point to go to imagine a, a, a new thing. I don't know what I'm saying there. I'm probably going to no, edit this no. Out. I think that makes I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, thinking about some of like the not great things in the Bible, right? I mean, they're they're there, right? And some of them are just weird to us personally, um, but made sense in the context of the time, right? Like they weren't considered mm -hmm. weird or wrong in the context of the time. And there's nothing sort of objectively bad about them. And I'm thinking of the, the tradition, because we just did this in my Hebrew translation class. Um, there's a part of the Genesis story where one of Joseph's brothers um, has a daughter-in-law and then his son dies um, before he's able to give her a child. And the status of a widow was a little sort of tenuous. And in the culture at that time, it was considered a brother-in-law's duty if your brother died without leaving any children um, to go give his wife a child for him, mm. which like to us is so icky and weird, right? It's like, you know, oh, but it's not necessarily an objectively bad thing. It was part of the culture. And if you start to get in their minds and think about, well, why would this be done? 
some of the weirdness and the ickiness evaporates, but there are bad things too, right? I mean, right. they're just kind of objectively, right? Where we're like, well, that's patriarchal or, you know, that, that's homophobic, whatever. And you have to deal with those things. But part of dealing with those things is also looking at how they're dealt with in history, right? right. The Bible talks a lot about stoning people. Um, but even, you know, 2000 years ago, the rabbis of the Talmud were so profoundly uncomfortable with this idea of the death penalty that they, this is a fine Jewish tradition. They made rules around rules, around rules, around rules, so that you can never get to the proscribed behavior. So many layers of don't do this thing, right? Avoid this and then avoid this other thing and then avoid this other thing. And they did that with things in the Bible that they found uncomfortable, such as the death penalty, um, because they're like, well, it's in the Bible, so we can't just say, well, don't do it. Um, but they made it functionally impossible to enact the death penalty because they were so uncomfortable with it. It was 2000 years ago. Um, one thing that I'm talking about in my dissertation is um, gender in the Bible and specifically gender in the creation story. And the rabbis had words for transgender people. The rabbis had words for gender nonconforming people. Um, you know, and they're well, they're well, well attested. I mean, like close to close to a thousand uses for, you know, each one of these terms. Um, so that tells us something, right? I mean, that tells us that there's always, there's always kind of this subtle undercurrent of pushback um, that I think is a big part of Jewish culture. We like to joke about fighting God a lot. Um, you know, even as obviously uh, the figure of, you know, a lot of love as well. But there's always kind of that undercurrent of um, subversiveness. And many rabbis have called the Bible a subversive text. And in fact, the redactor of the Bible left contradictory, um, you know, contradictory text, right? And that was not like, that wasn't an editorial mistake. Um, that wasn't like, you know, somebody forgot what they'd done a couple months ago and they couldn't control F it, right? The Bible is subversive um, on purpose and it's meant to be, I think. Um, and I think we're meant to get something out of that. We're, and I would say we're meant to get that you should be questioning, you should be pushing back, you should be saying, okay, but why? Um, and I think that's a really important lesson um, that's useful not to just to Jewish people, um, but to lots of people. Um, and I, I love the idea of, you know, this very profound holy text also pushing back in a lot of ways against itself, which is a really interesting concept. One thing that was coming to mind is we so often hear this phrase um, repeated in, you know, progressive Christian circles, right? Love thy neighbor, right? Love thy neighbor, love thy neighbor. Um, in fact, I had a classmate once who wore a shirt that said, you know, love thy neighbor, your black neighbor, your gay neighbor, your Muslim neighbor, right? And I was like, that's not what that verse means. Um, it's very clear in the Hebrew uh, that it's talking about love your fellow Israelite, who is your neighbor and probably irritates you because he like doesn't trim his hedges right now they come over your property line or, or whatever, right? He, he plays his music too loud, right? Or whatever. But it's very clear about love your fellow Israelite. And that's incredibly important because there's some more stuff in between this um, that's of technical interest, but kind of long and complicated. Um, but then we get to this part, love the stranger, right? And if you're a Jewish person, um, you know, like the next part, like by heart, it's a huge part of um, the Passover Haggadah, which is um, 
like sort of the Passover liturgy that you do during the Seder meal. Um, and it's become a very popular sort of phrase that gets passed around uh, sort of Jewish uh, circles as well. Um, because you were once a stranger in the land of Egypt, right? And that I think is the core of the message, right? You have to be able to love people who are essentially like you, um, but you have to be able to love people who are just totally other than yourself, right? Love your neighbor is predicated on um, a shared sense of identity. And it's certainly natural for us to look at someone other than us and look for a shared sense of something, right? And certainly we want to acknowledge, obviously, the shared humanity um, of all people. But there's also something powerful about looking at someone with whom you have pretty much nothing in common, right? And saying, that's who I share my humanity with, right? Someone mm. totally other than me. And it's a really common phrase in the Bible. It's especially common in um, what are called priestly texts. So we assume that the priests, um, the Levites, were the authors of Leviticus and other um, quote-unquote priestly texts. And you see it a lot in there. And there's some really interesting theories as to why that are. Um, Richard Friedman is a, a really famous Bible scholar and he proposes in his book, Exodus, that actually um, Israel was already a nation at the time, supposedly, right? That the Jews were in Egypt. The prevailing theory, right? Kind of before him was, well, the Jews were never in Egypt. It was a made up story. They put it in after the Babylonian exile um, in the late, uh, oh God, I have to like do the reverse math of like before common era centuries, 586 BCE. That's more than a skip the centuries. Um, but he says, no, the Levites were in Egypt. They were not part of the Jewish people. They escaped Egypt. They were a much smaller group. They came up to Israel. They integrated into um, ancient Israelite culture around the time that the Bible was being written, um, which is a much better story, first of all. <laughs> So you sort of want to believe it, but it also tells us something really profound about loving the stranger, right? And accepting this, not just accepting the stranger if they assimilate, um, but actually taking parts of them that they're willing to share. Certainly you don't want to appropriate, um, but really acknowledging the other and making yourself part of the other, right? As much as you expect the other to be part of you. And God is, you know, at least in the sort of Abrahamic tradition, um, the ultimate transcendental other. Um, I mean, Derrida talked a lot about, you know, the sort of final transcendental signified, which is the Godhead, right? And that's really what God is. Um, and so if, if you can have conversations with someone who's so wholly other, you can't even begin to comprehend, you can certainly have conversations with another human being. Right, who's just different than yourself. And I think that's really at the core um, of why I wanna do this project. I think there's a lot that's really interesting and it's not all serious. There's lots of humor in the Bible too. And there's lots of humor in, in the passages that I'm, uh, some of the passages that I'm looking at. So it's not all just this kind of very somber, you know, spooky experience, right? There's joy, um, there's very funny human moments, which is kind of one of the interesting things about the Bible, I mean, God is this, you know, very transcendental other figure. Um, but some of these conversations with God feel very, very human. And it's an interesting paradox. I'm excited to explore it. Um, and I want to thank you for having me on the show to talk about it. I've really gotten a lot out of this conversation. 
Awesome. Well, I'm glad you were able to. Uh, hopefully, I was just able to keep up because, again, your this project sounds amazing and fascinating, and like Thank genuinely, you. I cannot wait to read this. So, wow, yeah. that means so much. Sometimes you really like. Sometimes you were either like, "Is anybody gonna read this? Is anybody gonna care?" Certainly, it's not like I said um, something that seems like a very you know hot topic. So you sort of wonder, like, "Oh God, is this gonna be like?" really boring and no one's going to care about it because they're like who cares about this boring ancient stuff so that's very exciting to me yeah at least for me I've read so many dissertations even outside of like rhetoric and composition or like tech com or anything like I I like reading people's dissertations if anything to give it a little bit more rhetorical velocity beyond just the dissertation committee (laughs) so yeah totally and hopefully other people will want to read it as well thank you good on you for doing that um Yes, and it's my hope, like I was talking about earlier, you know, it's my hope that rhetoric as a field begins to gain some velocity beyond rhetoric as a field. I think we import a lot, and I have talked about Mm -hmm. this with other people, certainly, too. Um, And I talk about it kind of in my my dissertation intro, but like, we import a lot, and it seems like people aren't really conversant with our work. And that's not necessarily just an us problem. Um, certainly we're a, a newer discipline, right? So people aren't as familiar with it as they are as, you know, say the classics, right? Which have, have been around since the disciplines kind of emerged. But I want to start helping rhetoric gain some traction and saying, you know, rhetoric can be useful to people in Jewish studies, to people in biblical studies, um, to people who do Bible as literature, whatever, right? Rhetoric is useful, um, and not that like use is the only reason to, to do something, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really, really cool um, and very good of you that you you give those pieces traction. Um, and my hope is that this continued work will, will maybe get rhetoric a little bit more traction um, because I think that's something as a field we're trying to attend to more. Right, totally. Well, again, thank you for talking to us, me and the listeners about your work. Um, Did you have any social media or a website that you would like our listeners to look up to learn more about you or your work? Sure. Uh, You can visit my very inactive Twitter page, at (laughs) Eliza Gellis, E-L-I-D-A-G-E-L-L-I-S. You'll also find my website link there. It's elizagellis.weebly.com. Um, one of the best ways to get in touch with me, I do get Twitter DMs, uh, I get those notifications, or you can just reach out to me via email. Um, you can reach me at egellis, E-G-E-L-L-I-S, at purdue, P-U-R-D-U-E, dot E-D-U. Um, I would love to hear from folks. So thank you again for this really amazing opportunity. Um, of course. And for doing this podcast in general, you are doing really, really good work. Um, Thank you. you. I'm hoping. Yeah. (laughs) Well, again, thank you for your time and um, have a great day. Thank you. You too. Say hi to your cat for me. I will. (laughs) She's screaming in the background right now. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. So she's like, attention now. Yeah, I I feel that. Well, thank you again. appreciate it. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about this and other episodes at tellmemorepod.com, 
where you'll also find transcripts for each episode. The opening and closing theme song is Meter by Slow Alarm, music licensed under an attribution non-commercial share-alike license, and special thanks to Slow Alarm for providing the music free of charge. You can learn more about Slow Alarm at nolltealrecords.blogspot.com. Be well.